You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Samantha Thornhill. Samantha is an amazing poet, performer, and writer. She was my poetry teacher my first year at Juilliard, and she taught me a lot about self-expression and introduced me to forms of spoken word and writers who I hadn't encountered before. We haven't seen each other in person in many years, but I've been able to keep up with what she's been doing on Facebook. Her work is truly powerful, and her presence as an artist has always inspired me, so I was thrilled when she agreed to talk with me for the podcast. This conversation took place via Skype, um, me being in New York, and her on a balcony in Trinidad, where she is now living. I hope you enjoy the 30th episode of The Compass. So what do you do to keep yourself from going to the dark side as an artist? And what it, what is the dark side for you when you find yourself going there? For me, the dark side is wallowing in self-doubt. That that's My dark side is, is um, not seeing myself in my light and my power. And seeing myself as not enough and not ready and not deserving of what is waiting for me on the other side of that. Um, so what that does is it paralyzes my pen. My medium is writing and writing requires all of you and it requires a tenacity and it requires a confidence and, and it's an exercise of the ego because you're saying that I have something to say. Right. And it's worth writing down. It's worth taking the time to write this down. And, you know, sometimes when I have these beginning poetry students, that's an issue for some of you, some of the actors in particular, because it's like, does anyone want to hear this? You know, um, who cares about this? And so that that kind of self-talk is is my my and it does stymie my ability to create um, you know uh, the work that wants to come out and I say the work that wants to come out because I do believe that the creative um, the creative like my, my medium is being poems I believe that each poem has a spirit and it's its own entity it's its own spirit that comes through me and so that's why when I create a poem I might intend to do one thing, but it has its own ideas. Hmm. And then once it becomes what it wants to be with my help, it then does its work in the world. So long as I then have that ego to put it out and say, this needs to be heard. It does its work apart from me. And for that reason, I think the work is a spirit. And I think this translates into all, all arts. So when there is that sort of energetic blockage, that, um, you know, where we put ourselves, you know, we, our ego sort of can be, a, I think our ego can be a propelling force that helps us and it could also do the opposite. Right. Um, right. And so sort of like, like performing, I think it's natural to be, because I'm a writer and a performer, I understand both sides of it where sometimes it's um, when you're about to perform, you're nervous. On a, on a biological level, that nervousness is there to help you. It's, a, it's like, it's your a kind of adrenaline, right? But as we know, that nervousness can also be crippling and can also, you know, um, 
make your performance less than because it's almost like the times I've been really nervous, really nervous, like debilitatingly nervous, mm -hmm. is because I'm making it about me. How am I going to be perceived? How am I, I am I going to mess up? And when at the end of, you know, when we're serving a greater thing, really, that's what it is. So, and you're just kind of a vessel and we're an imperfect vessel through which, you know, all of this comes through. So, yeah, so that's, so the, the what I do, I guess the harder answer to the question is, yeah, what do you do? You know, when yeah. you're, you're contending with this, with this dark side, um, sometimes there's a, there's a, for me, there's a distinction between weather and climate. Sometimes I acknowledge that this thing is, is weather. I'm having a rainy day. It's time to have it. Let myself have a rainy day. <laughs> right. And you it, know, it's going you know, to pass. Yeah. It, it will pass, you know, um, and the journal keeps me so honest because I, I make sure that I write in my journal no matter what I'm feeling. So sometimes we could, we could go to our journal when we're feeling angst. And therefore, if you look back on your, all your journal entries, it's <laughs> angst, angst, angst. And that's the history. Right. Of, you know, that, right. That's your, that's if your someone memory. found that in a hundred years. <laughs> right. You're like, damn, what, did you have a good moment in your life ever? Right. <laughs> I keep a journal diligently to express the spectrum of emotion. So when I'm like feeling myself and I just did some, I make sure that I write that too. Mm. So that when I am having those dark moments, I can look back and say, wait, it's not always like this. It's not always like this. This is how I'm feeling today. And yes, I'm engulfed in it. And yes, I'm in my feelings, but this is weather. This is weather. It's, it's harder when um, you do move to a different geography in yourself and your climate changes, right? Mm -hmm. And it does become a climate, this sort of, it's almost like Seattle, you know, and, and you know, like that, that perpetual fog, uh -huh. you know, that, um, you know, it's, it, it hasn't been there your whole life, but it's, it's here now and it seems to not really let up. And I've been through that too. I have moved to these different geographies inside myself and found myself perpetually lacking in confidence and um really though a lot of it was a function of living in new york yeah. um new york is so you know i look at my life now as pre-new york and post-new york this is post-new york mm -hmm. for the last 10 years in new york a city that i've loved since i was a child it's not, it's not, it's not always healthy to stay there for, without departing because we are constantly, I think that we're constantly around, we're around other talents and sometimes it causes us to sort of compare ourselves. Mm -hmm. Now with writers, what we tend to do as writers is that we're stumbling through something, you know, but, and we're comparing our process to someone else's finished product. Mm. Not knowing what the hell hells they went through to make that. Right. But you just know you're reading this finished shiny product and it just flows and you're like, oh my God, this must have tumbled out of this person. And you're here like pulling teeth, right. pulling blood from stones to get this out. But they went through that too. Um, you know, so, so there's this sort of, we try to like find our mirrors and other people 
when mm. everyone is really, we're really on all on our own path. And uh, I respect so much when I, when you read about the lives of writers and artists, everyone has their unique trajectory, you know? There's the, there are the poets that come out of the gates at age 24 and win some big prize and then their career plateaus. There are those who have a steady build. There are those who are famous after they die. There are those, you know, it's just, we all have our unique journey. And sometimes I don't think we honor that enough because we think that we're supposed to be somewhere at a certain time, right? you know, because of some pre-prescribed notion that this is what success looks like. Right. And it's someone else's external imposition, you know, of what success looks like. And we right. measure ourselves against that. And so I think sometimes for me, um, when I'm in, when I, it's hard to sort of intellectualize this and understand, be philosophical about this when you're going through it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but the journal, the journal helps. Um, talking to friends helps. That's the other thing. We, we isolate ourselves, mm-hmm. right? That's why this podcast is so important because there are resources out there of artists who are, you know, this shit is not original. Like we're all, you know. I know, even though in the moment it feels like you're the only one who's ever felt that way. Yes, you feel alone. And and so when you talk to a friend or when you go on your podcast, it's like you're in a dark room and then it's like someone, something or someone flips the light switch and you're like, oh shit, you know, I'm not alone (laughs) at all. There's someone like right next to me in their own dark space, you know? So whatever we can do for ourselves to flip that switch, I think helps. And sometimes there's a sort of weird, um, I I think there's a deliciousness to feeling deeply, Mm -hmm. even if it hurts. You know what I mean? Yeah. And sometimes we don't want to get feel any other way. (laughs) Sometimes we're choosing to feel this. I'm in my feeling. I'm having a full experience. It sucks but I would have it no other way right now. Sometimes I do purposely isolate. I know I could call somebody, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I choose not to. So I am choosing to feel this way, right? right? And maybe it's because it's just part of the process and part of what it is to, it's, it's like sort of the loneliness of being a human, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we So we do that to ourselves. But then other times when I, I know I really don't want to, I, I rely on my fellow artists who believe in me. Um, I have a friend who uh, I would have never have thought to have done this, but she also, fellow poet who also deals with her her dark spaces. And she had, she asked a group of her friends to write, to write notes about her, positive notes about her, like how they see her, you know, because we see her in her power. We see her in her light. And she asked a few of her friends, because she was, I think, a therapist or something, um, maybe suggested. And so, you know, each of us, like, wrote a paragraph and sent it to her email. And she printed these things out, and she has them on hand for when she she needs that. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she, she looks to our language, and she gets reminded of herself. Sometimes we need reminding of ourselves. Right. Um, and that has, you know that has proven to be it doesn't does it solve the problem no but it's a salve in those moments at times um so yeah i mean so those are just some practical those are a couple of practical things that i i i've done and friends of mine a friend of mine has done 
Yeah, but for me personally, my journal, I've been writing in a journal since I was 12 years old. Hmm. So that's my best friend. That's my constant. That's my, if nothing else, I have that book. I have them all um, garage, about 50 or 60 journals from, from when I was 12. And so that is my sort of, that's been my sort of lifeline um, through all of these, through all of these sort of tumultuous uh, emotional seas. Right, to have that practice in your life. Yeah, it, it's a, it's 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 a it is a it's a practice. It's a meditation. It, it's a spirituality. It's um, you know, and so that's if there's no other way, I take care of myself. I also always make sure I take a shower. Mm-hmm. Um, like since I've been a mother, you know, I always heard about mothers. I don't take a shower. That's not my story. It, that's the one thing. If not, even if I have him in the tub in the shower with me, I will take a shower a day. I will not. I you know it's. It, right. Because I feel better when I take it, and I also, and also, um, with the dark moments too. There's a lot to be. Maybe this goes without saying. There's a lot to be said for crying. <laughs> I love crying. I think crying is the. <laughs> I think it's the most healing. I mean, sometimes maybe for some it's not. It, you know, it's it makes them spiral deeper. But for me, there's some days when I wake up. And I know there's this knot in my in my chest, and I know that I won't feel right unless I squeeze them out, you know. And sometimes I had I one of those days this week when it just like it must it just had been a long time I think, and just everything that day, I could feel myself welling up. And I got home that night and I took a shower, and I ended up just like crying in the shower for like ten minutes, and Absolutely. it just needed to happen. It just like had been pent up for some reason. Yeah, because there are just the the daily traumas of being a human. Mm-hmm. It's that slight comment. It's that status update from someone. It's that feeling of rejection. It's that you know. It's it's just we incur these things all the time, and because we've learned to sort of protect ourselves a little bit, you know, we don't feel it right away, but it builds up and it builds up and. So sometimes it's inexplicable what I'm feeling and why, because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a stew of things. And so I think, um, crying is a healing mechanism the same way we get a cut and there are certain hormones that are released to heal that cut. That's what crying is for the spirit. Mm -hmm. I I think it's a healing, it's a healing mechanism. And, you know, it's sometimes we just don't want to succumb to it for whatever our hangups are about crying. But I, I think it's, I think it's totally healthy and it feels great. So <laughs> sometimes in, when I'm in my spaces and I've been, I've had years where I tried not to cry and all that stuff, but I, I, I've pretty much gotten over that when I need to do it, I do it. And I've done it on the subway train. I've done mm-hmm. it. I, just, <laughs> I, I cry. Like I just, yeah. I let it out. Um, and it jars people sometimes, but uh, but I, I think I'm much healthier for it. And it, 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 is, it is jarring to people who, because I have a, uh, a happy disposition, mm-hmm. people sort of um, hinge, hinge something on that. And so when I don't show up like, right, it, it makes them uncomfortable. It's jarring for them. It's jarring for them because it's, it's you know, my normal is to have a certain buoyancy to my spirit that isn't always there. And, mm-hmm. um, so for, 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 for quite a while, I've, I've, I've 
over this as well is there's this there's been this pressure on me to always have that face because it you know you don't want to make people uncomfortable you know right but I've 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 changed my relationship to discomfort <laughs> in recent years so <laughs> can you so, yeah yeah um it's that's a it's a really that's a really I guess that's the question of the podcast. I mean, that's really the central central theme of the podcast. I think this. Yeah. I've never really answered that, that question, so this I, I appreciate the discussion. Yeah, me too. So you said that this change of moving out of New York has been so huge for you. Did how did you come to the decision to leave? I um. I wasn't expecting to become a mother. Mm-hmm. It was an unexpected surprise, unexpected gift. Uh-huh. But I always told myself that I would not raise kids in New York. I don't. I always said this. I, I people do it. Kids thrive in New York. But it was just something in me that said I, I, I don't want to raise children here. But it was always just a, a thought. And then once I got pregnant and I had some decisions to make, I kind of had to eat my words and. <laughs> I tried to visualize having a baby in New York. Like, I tried. Because I I was comfortably entrenched in New York. There's, you know, Juilliard's been holding me down. Mm -hmm. I have just a wonderful cadre of artists that I mess with on the regular, you know, on different projects. I have my, I teach my senior citizens. Like, I had it good. Right. You know, I, you know, I would travel to different countries. I was performing. So life is just fine you know so now this little beautiful wrench gets thrown in it and I could not picture life in New York anymore with child I just couldn't I and so my I tried I listened to my guts and I told myself I have to leave at least for a time um so I didn't officially leave Juilliard I went on leave for a year okay because Maybe I, I'll come back. Maybe I'll go out and say, damn, New York was my jam. What was I thinking? You know? Right. That's good. So, so you still have the option. That, but I did give up my apartment. Okay. I did give away my books, some of them. <laughs> and, um, and I packed my belongings and I went to my mom's place in Florida, which is where I grew up. And I had the baby there. Uh-huh. And um, some circumstances happened there that... Um, you know, essentially, my uh, I was going to stay at my mom's for a time, and that time that time ended sooner than I expected. Mm-hmm. And um, because my mom lives in a senior citizen community, and the baby wasn't allowed there. Oh. Yeah. Four months in, we got a phone call because I'm parading this shiny baby around and all the seniors are saying hello, but behind my back, they were (laughs) calling me the all-powerful association. So I was asked to leave. That's the the honest, you know, situation. And so with the rug getting pulled out from under me, I'm like, I displaced myself from New York. I'm being displaced now. What the hell am I doing with my life? And so I felt like I had sabotaged my life in a way Uh by leaving what was comfortable for the unknown. And, but there's, I, but you know, I think, um, my relationship with, with life is not that of controlling it. So I tend to lean into the mystery of things and that's, that's one of my strengths. So though this happened, I didn't expect it to happen. I didn't want it to happen. What now? Look, it's happening. 
So how am I going to reconfigure myself and adjust? That's a huge strength to look at that as a positive thing, or it could be that mystery is a positive element. That's huge in the arts where you don't know anything about what's going to happen. And that's so much, and, and that's, a sort of con- a connection I make to like performing and stage fright um, is when you are about to perform, you, we're nervous because we be, because of the unknown, but it's we're putting a, a negative connotation on the unknown that right. all the wrong things are going to happen. But what if it's what if that unknown really is exciting? You know, like like that unknown is is amazing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that's kind of. So it was a process for me to get there because I was in a fog and like, where do I go? And I have this child with me and, you know, you know, what? Then it started, the clouds started to clear. And I was coming to Trinidad anyway to visit some family because there were some weddings happening in the family. And I never, you know, I've always wanted now, as much as I said, I didn't want to raise a child in New York. I did say that I wanted to raise a child in my homeland. And I thought, wow, maybe this is actually happening sooner mm. than I expected. And I connected the dots. And I, though I'm not ready to like, I wasn't ready to get my own apartment. I do, I did need support. And I spoke to a cousin of mine who said that I could stay with her. Oh my goodness! And that's where I am. And I'm so I'm, I've landed in this beautiful. Uh, oh. oh. You know. In this beautiful situation, she, you know, it's it's comfortable. I'm home. I, you know, this is my earliest memories exist here. How and old were son, you when you left? I was eight. Okay. And my son is thriving here. I'm. I feel, though I'm not quite. I don't know where I belong in this life. You know, I'm not convinced I belong here, but it feels lock and key for right now. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, had you been to New York before you moved? moved there 10 years ago yes i i grew up in the suburbs of florida and i had a sister an older sister who was a wilhelmina model and she lived Uh. on the upper west side i went to new york for the first time and when i was 11 to visit her and i fell in love i mean it was i it actually you know in returning to those sort of monotone monochrome suburbs i felt out of place Ever since I went to New York, I felt out of place for the rest of my childhood because hmm. the homogeneity, the the sort of gated community, you know, I just, mm-hmm. and, and coming from Trinidad, which is, you know, you can have a purple house in Trinidad and not get fined for it. Right. <laughs> you can plant whatever flowers you want. I remember my mother tried to plant some, my mother, my mother, my mother liked to garden, and she planted some flowers in a neighborhood. And they find, they said that she had to pull them out because it wasn't in regulation. So there's a sort of, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, what, so I, I come from a colorful place, and then I went to visit another colorful place, and I was in between. And so yeah, I since I was young, I have vowed to live in New York. And it, you know, after I graduated from high school, I didn't get any. I couldn't, I couldn't afford to go to school out of state, so I stayed in Florida. Mm-hmm. And then I applied to New York schools for grad school, didn't get into any of them, got into the University of Virginia, which is like, you know, one of the top schools in the nation, but not my top choice. I Went see. to Virginia, which ended up being an incredible blessing. And then the Juilliard opportunity is what uh, 
facilitated my move there. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the place that teaching takes in your artistry? Like, is it something that you really find a lot of joy in, or is it something that's, um, you know, related to your writing and something you can do to make money and it kind of fulfills that place or what part does it take in your life? Good question. Um, Teaching, I like teaching. Sometimes I love teaching. But it's not why I'm here. Right. I'm here to write. And so moving to New York... Teaching was my bread and butter. There was Juilliard. There was teaching my... It's like teaching at four different institutions, three institutions in hustling. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, my art suffered incredibly because of it. Because I have a hard time being my best teacher when I'm teaching others. When we're, when we're an artist, we, have, we are self-taught when we're making art. Because art teaches us that you have to bring yourself to that place and you have to have the psychic space and have the discipline to create. But my energy was just going to everyone and everywhere. And I, my, my art really suffered during my time in New York. The only time I really wrote any, like, wrote, wrote was when I went on writing retreats over the summers. That was the only time I had creative output. Then I'm back and I'm teaching here and I'm teaching. The, and coming up with lesson plans is a creative energy because it's like you're crafting an experience for your students to, look, to, to facilitate their growth. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's pulling from my reserves. So, you know, and unfortunately, you know, I, I wasn't writing poems about teaching and stuff. You know, it just, it's very different. It's just very, it's a very different requirement of me. And it did, it did affect uh, my craft. So in this new configuration of my life, the decision to leave New York was also a decision for a chapter change in every respect. I have spent 10 years furthering um, students in their own craft, and it's my turn. Yeah. So my family, because teaching is how I've always made a living, aside from, like, performing, which was, is, like, supplemental income, mm-hmm. like, my, like, poetry and performing is supplemental. But um, my family wanted me to... They were, they were concerned for me. They saw that I completely, you know, changed everything, mm-hmm. and they, they were comfortable seeing me making a certain amount of money doing this thing that I know how to do and, and do t- to some extent well, right? And so they were sort of like, you know, aren't, can't you go back to that? And I, I was like, no. And they just didn't understand because they're not an artist. I, I, I knew that I had to find a way to alchemize my earning power so that writing is what's bringing in my keep and not teaching. And it took me a few months to figure it out. But, um, you know, the the good thing is, while poetry doesn't pay, nonfiction does. So I'm, I'm writing for a women's website called Fembi, and I write articles and editorials about issues that uh, pertain to women. I love it. I, 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 it I'm, in, I'm intellectually stimulated. I'm, my heart is engaged in, in it because I'm passionate about women. Mm-hmm. and um, And so... Because I, you know, and I had to sort of get back into shape, like, okay, I, this is due this day and grinding. And so I'm, 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 I'm definitely back in mid condition in terms of creative output, in terms of output. And alongside that, the poems have been trickling back 
because I can go for long periods of time without writing poems. As much as it hurts, I can I can not write a poem for two years. Hmm. And you know, there are some poets that I admire. The poets I call them carpenter poets that can sit down at five o'clock in the morning at that desk and write for an hour or write for two hours, and even if it's I mean, and have that discipline. I'm I've, I've never been that. I am a inspiration, you know. I am hmm. like uh, because when it when a poem comes to me from that place where it hits me anywhere, anytime, that's where my best work comes. I've I've gone to writing retreats that require me to write a poem a day, and I always meet I always meet it. You know, it's uh-huh. I have no problems creating when a, an external pressure is on me, but it doesn't come from inside me hmm. to write every day. It's it it comes it comes when it comes when the spirit hits. So. Um, so now that I'm in this place where I'm constantly creating, I'm now writing poems on the side as they, about my, you know, like having my son as they come to me, but I'm also working on a memoir. When, when did you start that? Is that recently? Yeah. That's really exciting. It's it's recent and I also feel like I've been writing it my whole life. But it's recent. But it's it's interesting that you started it once you moved back home to Trinidad or where you were born. Yes, I um that's what inspired it actually. I uh I took my son so because I was I left Trinidad when I was 8. Mm-hmm. This is a reconnection for me. Yeah. I'm reconnecting with my roots, with my homeland, and I'm here with my son and I get to re-explore my island and show it to him. And so I went to a river mm-hmm. um with him and that's when I had the epiphany. I was watching him sort of, because, you know, you never know how babies are going to respond to different environments because they're, you know, sometimes you can rock them by putting them in a different place. They're like, what is this? You know, so I, I'm still feeling him out, like how he responds to different people, places, and, and things. So we go to the river, which is an unknown environment, and it was like he had been living there his whole life. I mean, the boy just, I put him in the water and he tried to drink it, you know? I mean, <laughs> like, okay, make yourself at home, so <laughs> And I said, wow, you know, and he was digging up in the rocks and he was as happy as can be. And I thought I could take this boy anywhere. And that's when the kind of aha moment happened, because I do have wanderlust. um, And, you know, I am a traveler. So the traveler is always looking for something. There's something we we're searching for as travelers and we don't always know what it is. Part of it is a function of leaving Trinidad when I was young and moving to a white suburb in the United States and not really feeling as though I belonged anywhere. And that is a feeling that has, you know, traveled with me throughout my life. It's a theme of, you know, even coming home, I don't feel like I belong here because I've been away. So I'm different right. from anyone, everyone here. You know, I've, my beliefs, my, my, my thought process, it's like my family, I'm an alien, you know, I'm an alien to some, right. the way my mind functions. So, you know, it's, I'm picking through it and finding out where I belong, and maybe that's a that's something I'll contend with my whole life. But I, I'm dedicated to finding out where that space is, and I'm willing to travel with Sadar to find out. And so, what's important to me is that he is a good traveler, and so I'm writing a travel memoir with a baby. Oh, I can't <laughs> well, wait! This is going to be my new favorite book. Travel I love that. How has it been being a mom and an artist together? Like, I 
I'm so curious about it. I want to have kids one day and I'm, I'm fascinated to learn how you're making it all work. Yeah. You know, a lot of mothers talk about losing their identity as a career person, as an artist, right. because this child like swallows, <laughs> swallows up your time and energies. And so I've heard a lot of mothers talk about that. So I braced myself right. for this sort of identity shift, loss, what have, what have you. And it never arrived. I never feel, I feel like a mother and I feel like an artist, you know, uh, like it just, it, it didn't compromise that. Do I have less time for my art? Yes. Do I, you know, it's the, the, the good thing is that I've put my, I'm in a position now where I'm making enough to, to afford help three days a week. Okay. So that has given me an enormous relief because I was really just raising this child. I have a, his part, my partner is a, is a traveler, like a perpetual traveler. So, so while he supports me, I can call him and say, Sadar's doing this. He supports me financially. You know, I'm the onus is on me. Yeah. You know, the, the, the responsibility is on me day in, day out. And my cousin, who I live with, has a five-year-month, a five-year-old of her own to contend with. So it's really on me, and it's, it's I, you know, I feel like a single mother in that in that sense, like in the day-to-day sense. And it is it, kudos to real single mothers who are, actually don't have any support, you mm-hmm. know, from from a part a concerned partner. Wow, wow, you know. So, um, so I, I would say that if you are in a relationship or like a traditional relationship with a concerned partner that he's involved as much as possible. Um, that is something that women, you know, we t- kind of take over, you know, the whole motherhood thing, even mm-hmm. when there's a partner there who wants to help, we're like, you know, it's my way. And we make that mistake because what ends up happening in the working world is that women have a hard time advancing in their careers because we have so many responsibilities at home and we have a hard time juggling both. Meanwhile, our spouses are like soaring professionally because they have less responsibility. So if my ideal thing is if a, if a man is, he's a concerned partner and he's not a complete patriarch (laughs) (laughs) that he feels an equal sense of responsibility to the child, to the home, to the duties, the wiping of the kid's ass, the bathing, the feeding, you know, like he has an equal stake and investment in what happens and, and you and that that's what's going to ultimately really help a, a woman proceed in her craft and in her art. You know, I'm doing it because, you know, I'm doing it in that I'm doing it without that. But, you know, I have a good handle on motherhood. Like I just took even though I, I didn't expect him and I didn't I never fantasized about children. I, I was like, I'll do it, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. I was not passionate about but I, it's been waiting for me, and I, when I really, really took to it, my instincts are in beast mode, you know, and it's just, so motherhood, to answer your question about motherhood, it's like, who the hell was I, and what the hell was I doing before this, you know, like, I don't even yeah. know that woman, <laughs> it is, it, you know, I know some women really struggle with it and they don't talk about the struggle and they talk about, and I understand why, because it it is so gratifying to have, and it's such a privilege to have your hands on this fresh, impressionable life that you have the the power to mold and not make the same mistakes that have been made toward you, for you, you Mm -hmm. know, that you can make better decisions and you can build off of the, 
some the errors our parents made and also, you know, uh, you know, instill some of the strengths that they instilled in us. And it's like, you can, you have this opportunity. It's an enormous responsibility and blessing. And I, I tell him that I feel honored to be his mother. You know what I mean? I, I see him as my equal. I am his authority, but I see him as my equal. I respect mm. him because I think he's teaching me as much as I'm teaching him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, um, I love motherhood. Like it's, you know, it, it's, I can even just well up just thinking about it, but just what it has, um, what it has, what it has done for me. It's, uh, it's really, it's really a worthwhile, it's really worthwhile to, to parent. And so it is at, at first in the pragmatic sense, the only time I was able to write was when he slept. Right. And so, you know, mothering makes you a better multitasker. It makes you more time efficient. It makes you more, you know, it's just when he sleeps, when, I mean, as soon as his head crashes into the pillow, I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm throwing him in the crib because he's just <laughs> like, so long to sleep. I'm just like, go over there. Like, you do, you do need that relief. Like, sometimes he's so needy and it's just like, oh my God, leave me alone. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's like, oh. Because he, the boy loves me so much, he doesn't even know what to do with himself, you know? Aww. And he's just pulling me, and he wants to touch my face. I'm like, yeah. sweet baby, leave me alone. You know, <laughs> like, because it does pile up the, yeah. the other things I have to do. It's always like, okay, I have to, you know, because I write, I get paid per article. I have to write a certain amount of articles per week. That pressure right. never leaves me. It's always, right. like, time is so precious. So I'm like, I need to finish this. Okay, da-da-da, da-da-da. And okay, so sometimes... I do feel distracted in my head with the pragmatics of upholding this lifestyle. And he's looking at me and he, and he's the thing with children is that he's so present, right? Yeah. We're so in our heads as we learn to get to be in our, he's not in his head. He is right there waiting for me and how connected we are at any given day has everything to do with me and me showing up for him. You know, there are some days when I feel distracted, I'm working on it. And I need him to go to sleep, and he didn't sleep for as long as I wanted. Wakes up, and I'm still kind of thinking about it, and I'm playing with him. My mind is somewhere else, you know. Yeah. And I feel terrible. Like I feel like I'm not, you know. I I feel, you know, I feel some way about that on those days when, and he feels it too, you know, when he he sees that I'm distracted. Sometimes he could go play by himself, but he's always gonna come for me and look for me. And if I'm distracted, he starts whining and then I get annoyed and, and, and I right. realize, you know, he is a connective child who's relying on me to teach him the world and he has every right to be annoyed at me right now. And I have to, so my empathy toward him is what's making me better is because it's like, I have to have empathy because I brought him here, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and he has expectations and he has a damn right to his expectations, you know? So I, it's a, that's a constant balance. So now that I have a little help, it helps a lot because, you know, there's nothing better than basically two things. Waking up in the morning with him to that smile on his face, he just pops his head up and smiles and it crushes my heart. <laughs> and two, when I've had a full day of writing, his nanny did the damn thing and she hands him to me at three o'clock and I feel happy with what I accomplished for the day. And I'm ready to receive him hmm. and like really spend and be really time present with him. With, him. with him. Yeah. What'd you say? And just be really, be able to be present, present with him. Cause you've been able to have your time to write too. That is the best feeling. That's great. 
when I've accomplished that, I finished an article, and I am ready to be present for my child. That that's the balance. That's the divine balance that is very hard to strike if you do not have the proper support. Mm-hmm. What does is there anyone else in your family who's an artist? What do they make of your your poetry career? <sighs> my family, I, I must say, I, I am the I am the only. I, my brother is a sort of burgeoning cook, chef type, you know, and he takes photographs of his food. And so there's an artist in him that has risen up. My sister was a model. But, yes, I'm mainly the most, the identified artist of the family. Mm -hmm. You know, in the sense that, you know, I've had the most sort of, yeah, I would say that when my family looks at it, yes, I'm the artist. I'm the the sort of black sheep in that regard. They've They've been supportive. Like, they... At first, they didn't really know what I was doing up in my room all of those hours because I didn't perform my work for a long time, and I was just, like, writing my stuff and putting it away somewhere or publishing. So they didn't really have a concept of what I was doing for a long time. And But then when I started to share my work uh, orally, that's when they were like, oh, shit, that's what she's been doing? <laughs> like, and they've, they've rallied around me. They've championed me. They've been proud of me. I've tried doing different ventures. I've started a film. They were like, okay, what's she doing? There's Samantha. There goes Samantha again. Where is she now? Oh, she's in Greece. Where is she going next? <laughs> so they kind of don't know what to make of me. So, you know, so like they, yeah. they, with me, they just pretty much expect anything at this point. You know, um, but they, they, have been, they have been supportive and they have championed me. And, you know, I, I know a lot of artists, uh, especially men, Caribbean folk, our parents want us to either be doctors or lawyers, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're, they're pragmatic people, and it's like these are careers that's going to make you that 50000 a year right. or what have you. Which comes um, from love, which comes from them wanting to see you safe. That's yeah. right. That's right. And my, I can say that my family hasn't, they weren't, they weren't like that. Um, they're not that sort of, tr- my, my father, when I told him that I was going to major in creative writing, he said, don't you want to major in psychology and I majored in psychology for a semester. And I was like, no, I don't want to major in psychology. <laughs> I actually want to major in creative writing, and I changed my major. And so, um, and you know, that I just also have always had this inner compass that tells me what's right for my life. And sometimes they, you know, they didn't. I, I had conflict with them with the ousting because they don't want me to go to Trinidad. They want me to be close by. They want me to just get a job and you know put Sadar to daycare and do the traditional thing because I'm a mother now and you know, it's not just about what I want anymore. Right. Right. Yeah, so there's that, that there's that tension and there's that feeling in me that's like, no, you know what? I know too many people who are thanking their parents for sacrificing their dreams for theirs. And that's not what I'm about. I'm not, I'm, I love my child, but I don't feel like my back's against the wall enough for me to have to do that. And I know throughout time, people, have done that because their backs were against the wall or they felt their backs were against the wall. Right. So long as I have choices, I will utilize them. So I didn't co-sign with that at all. Like, oh, okay, because I'm a mother now, I have to swallow this. And, and I, I refused. I, I refused to believe that that was the only path that was available to me teaching and because that's all that I've known. I, I believed differently. So I'm glad that I listened to myself. It was, but really, it would have been like reversing the flow of my blood to listen to them because I, I when I'm set in what I know, even if I, I don't have proof, I'm going with that. So unless something really tragic happens, I'm like, dang, I need to get back to this workforce, you know, and I'll do what I have to do. Of course. 
yeah, you know, but until then, I'm going to figure something else out. So, so yeah, they don't always understand my choices mm-hmm. when I'm making them. And uh, so I love proving them wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want to keep you too much longer, one, because I'm going to have to leave the apartment in a little bit, and you've given me so much of your time. There's so many things that I would love to talk about, but I kind of, I love that we've been talking about a lot of the personal side of these things too, which is really, really helpful. Thank you. Um, But I did want to ask you about something you started when you were in New York, the Poets in Unexpected Places, and how that came about and how you, um, I don't know, it's always powerful when you kind of make opportunities for yourself and your collaborators instead of getting something from the establishment in a way. So can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember that time um, Edward Norton came to Juilliard uh-huh. and told the actors, start a band, do something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what that is. That was my band. Because so much of our success is bent on someone choosing us. And we have to choose ourselves, you know, in, in these various ways. So... Poets in Unexpected Places, uh, there were a series of unhingings that inspired that project, uh, but it was the overall feel, you know, question, it's a central question, does poetry matter to everyday people? And can it matter? And so if you, but most people don't come to it on their own. So what if you put it in their face? Uh, you know, and in the oral sense. So there's the poetry in motion on the subways, right? right. That's, that's doing that work. But there's also the energy of the human voice and the body and the breath and the intonations and what mm-hmm. that does to poetry. That because I understand the power of that, I felt like I wanted to share it in a way that didn't ask for permission yeah. <laughs> and wasn't sanctioned because that's the rebel in me. So I um so yeah, I did poetry. I, I taught a poetry workshop in at Rikers Island. So I worked with 17 male inmates, and that was a that was a kind of life altering experience. There are these that, so that was one, and then you know so there are a few things that happened that was like you know what does poetry mean to everyday people, and so I asked a couple of poets to come over and I talked to them and I said you know how about we try this like doing poems on the subway? Uh, they were terrified and said yes. <laughs> And so we, we put out a call. It was, and it was really just a, let's try it out. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, let's just experiment. You know, what if we brought the craft that we love into these spaces? How would it be received? So we, we called a bunch of other poets and asked them to join us. So the day that we d- decided to do it, it was April 2010. It was like eight of us that went. And that showed up at the, we showed up at the Gandhi statue in the Union Square. Mm-hmm. And, uh, on the way there, it kind of arrived. Like, I was on the train, and I said, are we really about to do this? This is, like, coming from the L train in Brooklyn, looking at the train, like, is, am I really going to stand up in this situation? And I was terrified. Like, I uh-huh. was like, I can't believe we're doing this. I learned. I later learned everyone was feeling the same way on the way there. Like, that, like, like you, you're dreading it. Like, you're dreading it, and you're doing it. And you're like, oh. But I was on the train. I was looking around, and I said, what, what's the optimal situation for poetry to, to succeed in this environment? And it just came to me. I just saw someone next to me stand up and say a poem and sit down. And I saw the person down here 
standing by the pole, say a poem, and go back to reading his book. And then I saw, and I said, that's it. Because it was like, are we going to do two to a car? Like, how are we going to reconfigure this? Once that vision came, I met with the group and I said, this is how we're going to do it. And everyone was so relieved because they thought that it was going to be like, okay, you two cover this car, you two cover that car. But I said, there's power, there's power in togetherness, the yes. group rally, and also the diversity of voices that we all have. And that all happening in the same space and just create, making a poetry celebration mm -hmm. um, to these unsuspecting passengers. So when we did that pop-up, it's the pop-up method, right? It's a pop-up. We learned, we later called it an instant, like a, a poetry pop-up installation. Um, though ephemeral, it, it did feel like an, in, an installation more than a performance. Um, uh, and uh, so once we did it, the response was so overwhelmingly powerful and positive that we knew we had to do it again. I mean, it was, I'll, I, I'll never forget coming home that day. I, f I felt like I gained a superpower because I came home that day from the trip. We did it for like maybe an hour and a half and I fell asleep and I slept for about 12 hours and I woke up and I felt different. Mm. I felt like I just did poems on a train. Like I could do anything. Yeah. You know, like it translated into my life. Like this, I carried that one into this. What are the other things in my life that are holding me back because of my fear? You know, what are the, you know, it, so it did unhinge me. And, um, and I think it, it had its own, for everyone that tried it, it, it did its, it, it did its work in everyone. And that's why we kept returning and doing it and doing it and do and trying different environments and, inviting more poets and trying different methods and passing out poems as well and we tried all these different different things so um that's what uh that's how that's how it started um that was probably the hardest aspect of new york to leave because i did i was working with four other curators on this project and the experiences that we'd had together and the situations that we put ourselves in you know th those are really indelible experiences and because I'm sort of the soul of the project, the sort of engine, though, though I worked with really brilliant minds, it was my baby. And so mm -hmm. I had to leave that baby to have another one. That's amazing. Before we go, are, is there anything that you've read recently that you want to recommend? Anything that's inspired you or friends' work that you want to share? Oh, my goodness. There's, there's some good stuff. Uh, I read... Um, I recently read this book, the book by Sheryl Sandberg called Lean In. Yeah, I haven't read it. I've heard a lot about it. Yeah, that was, that was, uh, it's, it's just, it's about uh, women leading in the workplace, but you could see it, you could use, I, I'm not a corporate woman and, you know, so in some ways it wasn't in alignment with, but it was really helpful to read that and contextualize sort of what my struggles were as a mother and how to better advance in my in my career with mm -hmm. mothering because she talked a lot about that and that's that's where when i was talking about the sort of support from the partner and a, a lot of that was gleaned from her from her text yeah lean in was was i felt i felt empowered by that read um oh gosh and so many of my friends are publishing books left and right i'm just ready to join them but you know, <laughs> there's a poet by the name of um 
Araceli's Germay. Okay. She's one of my favorite contemporary poets and happens to be a dear friend of mine. She just came out with a book called The Black Mariah. And uh, there's also a memoir by Padma Lakshmi okay. called Love, Loss, and What We Ate mm-hmm. um, that I really... I really dug. Um, yeah, that's that's all I could think of off the top of my head right now. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I'm really so grateful that you were able to talk with me and to give me your time. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you for connect. having me. listening to the compass podcast i'm leah walsh more episodes are coming soon please look for us on facebook and itunes i'd like to thank the following people for their generosity the compass cover art is by kim miller music by brendan spieth audio assistance from nick choksi and a special thanks to frankie j alvarez see you next time Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.